remember a time before singing. I grew up in an Irish-speaking community in Coolay in West County Cork, one of 12 children. And one of my early memories when I started school was the teacher putting me up on a chair and saying, Conavran and Ishtan Rang, what song have you got for us? I'm Irla Olinard. I grew up in a hive of Shano singing. It's part of my soul. But my voice has taken me on a voyage of sound from traditional Irish song to the global experience of the voice, from world music to new classical, to my work in traditional music with the gloaming. My experience across 50 years makes me want to explore the human relationship with voice, with sound, with singing. Why do we sing? And what happens to us when we do? In vocal chords, I'm taking time to explore these questions, my own journey through sound, and talking to people, mostly fellow singers across the world, about why we sing, both in times of sorrow and times of joy. Someone I met along the way said, the voice is a good place to explore what it is to be human. While the American vocalist, Meredith Monk, talks of us belonging to the world vocal family. Is singing how we began? Is it our innate way of communicating? Is it our common tongue before language divides us? And why does singing carry so much power? The power of memory, of healing and belonging. The power to emotionally change us more profoundly than words alone. As a singer, these are questions I ask myself. And these are the questions which have formed vocal cords, this odyssey of the voice. Why do we sing? And what happens when we do? I think there's great solace in singing. I think people instinctively sing. They sing to connect with other people, to communicate, express sorrow and joy and despair. When you sing, you sing, and you have to be completely absorbed in the act of singing. And if you do it with other people, if everyone's doing that at the same time, there's an extraordinary innate feeling of connectedness. You know, it's that feeling that you're part of something. What happens when I sing? I feel at one with universe. I feel powerful. I feel clear. I feel the beauty of the world around me. I feel pure, beautiful melodies, notes, vibrations running through me. I feel I'm developing as a human being and I feel that I'm bringing light into the world. I mean, technically, you know, I think I'm a crap singer, but I can move people and I can touch them. And that's sort of what interests me a lot more. Somebody said to me, when you sing, especially if there's a situation where there's a funeral or a marriage, when you sing, you pray twice. There's something about singing than talking. I remember when I grew up, my mama used to, you know, when she's busy in the kitchen, before singing her, like literally singing her, I would just listen in my room and listen to her when she sings. And that will send a vibe that will tell me if she's happy or she's sad. I can hear it in the voice. It's an expression of my spirit, of my soul, it's my life, it's my identity. So I couldn't ever imagine not singing. I always think it's a magic thread that goes from the song and the singer out to the audience and comes back again and this special air is created that allows us to listen in a certain way, allows us to sing in a certain way, allows the work to 
breathe and shine and sparkle in a certain way. I think that it's actually all of us as human beings are part of the world vocal family. When you start exploring your voice, there are sounds that you find that do transcend a particular culture. You know, they're used in different ways in the culture, but they are sounds that are part of the vocabulary of the, of the human voice, and the human voice is the original instrument. So you're going back to the very beginnings of utterance, and I think that's why when you hear it, in a way, it's like um, the memory of being a human being. The mellifluous Meredith Monk there. Monk is a New York-based composer and vocalist whose style is wordless singing. In many ways, she says words can get in the way of the emotional connection between the singer and the listener, or what Christy Moore calls that magic thread. So is that the universal language of mankind? A singing voice that reaches back to our origins? Well, I believe the voice is a very good place to start to explore what it is to be human, because it's something that holds us together as a species, doesn't it? But it also sets us apart because we use our voices in such different ways. So it's a great means of communication, and not just through language, perhaps more so through music, precisely because music communicates to different register. It's more emotional, it's more direct in some ways in relation to the emotions than language, which somehow passes through a different section of the brain. That's Thomas Hilland Erickson, a social anthropologist at the University of Oslo. We met up at a world music festival there and got into a conversation about how singing is at the very heart of our human history. Well, yeah, I mean, there is a very interesting book by an archaeologist called Stephen Mython, which is called The Singing Neanderthal. And his basic assumption or his argument in that book is that music preceded speech, that we sang far before we started to speak. And he speaks about this language, which he calls mmm, which is sound, but it's with no words, and that proto-humans may have used in order to convey their emotions, in order to warn each other of dangers, in order to express love and so on. So uh, there is something very deeply human about music. And Stephen Mython, whom Thomas Erickson mentions, is an archaeologist at Leeds University and the author of The Singing Neanderthals, The Origins of Music, Language, Mind and Body. So I think they communicated by using um, sets of, I suppose, phrases, almost like musical phrases that would have had semantic meanings. Phrases such as, you know, what would translate into something like, let us share meat, or we'll go hunting, or 
how are you feeling, but would probably have been expressed in various musical tones, different types of pitches, different types of rhythms. And they'd have used these also to build sense of group identity, very much how we use music today, and especially for caring for infants. You know, just like we do today with our youngest children, before they've got language, we sing to them and we move them rhythmically. I'm sure the Nandals would have been doing exactly the same. I believe that we human beings probably have more in common than we usually are aware of because of our differences in terms of race, language, religion, nationality, etc. So there is a lot that unites us and some uses of the human voice may be some of them. I mean, there are ways of singing wordless music. I mean, in popular music you have scat singing. I mean, there are various forms of folk music which merely convey a tone or an emotion or a sentiment. And there is research which suggests that some of these emotions are universal, in the sense that a melancholy song sung in Ireland is perceived in Tibet as a melancholy song and not as something different. In other words, that it conveys something universal, not only about the human voice, but also about human emotionality. Wordless songs. We find them all over the world. I grew up myself with wordless songs what we used to call puss music, sung between verses on the kerfar, the chorus, if you like. And what comes out of the mouth on those occasions actually dances. Thomas Erickson mentioned scat, where Louis Armstrong vocally mirrors his instrument. But that ancient idea of vocal sounds and songs being an early telegraph is found in things like yodeling. Yeah, from the origin of the yodeling music, it's also some kind of communication. For example, between mountains that one person can tell while singing to another person, oh, here is everything fine, or there's some storm coming up, be careful, because you can hear it for very far. That's normally sung with more than one people together, so some group of people. I am Anna-Maria Hefele, and I'm an overturn singer. I grew up near Munich in a small village, and my parents are both instrument makers, so my dad is an organ maker and my mom an accordion maker. So there was always music around my whole life. And besides overtone singing, I also do yodeling because it's another vocal technique that's very interesting for me and that also came out from our music tradition here in Bavaria and Austria. And yodeling is switching immediately between chest voice and head voice. So, and in the beginning of practice, you can start doing it from the, the high register without any tonal imagination. So something like, and if you don't find this uh, transition, you just go up with the voice like, and then it breaks, and this break 
we use in yodeling. And for this, we practice also in, in intervals like That's the normal way of yodeling. So having the chest note below and the, the head voice, the high note. Yodeling is something really funny in, in the group and there's special yodel choirs and also in Switzerland they have their own style of naturjodel, it's called. It's kept alive, especially on the, in the villages, not so much in the big towns, because people still like it and try to keep tradition alive, what's a good thing. My childhood memories are of singing the cows home through the fields. So that sound of yodeling echoing across the mountains is for me so evocative. I'll come back to Anna Maria Heffeler and her powerful ability to sing overtones and polyphonic singing later in the series. But I'm fascinated by this sense of a universal sound, a sonic language which connects us not through words, but noise or what Jamie Jones calls the constant hum. There's a, a concept called nada, which is that the world begins with sound. That's the first thing that ever happens. Now, this is one of many origin stories, I should say, but it's a pretty important one, especially musicians tend to <laughs> refer back to this. So nada kind of translates as primordial sound, but the idea is the universe begins with sound, and that sound, in a certain sense, also never had a proper beginning. So there's no beginning and no end to that sound. It's this constant hum, essentially, in the background. Many people relate this to the use of drone instruments, actually, in a lot of Indian music, to kind of affect that sense of that eternal, ever-present sound. So again, the job of the voice is to reach out to that and take it into the body and release it back. I suppose on one level we can say that that's one of the reasons that the voice has so much power because you're producing music but you're producing it through your breath. Jamie Jones is an ethnomusicologist who explores the global weave between music and culture. Jamie is from Chicago but is based now in University College Dublin where her research centres on the music of Southeast Asia. There's so many concepts of return and cyclicity, of course, in Hindu culture with reincarnation, the sort of endless cycle of birth and rebirth. And obviously the breath is cyclic in a very similar way. That cycle from birth to rebirth, from our first cry as a newborn to our last exhalation or as Joni Mitchell says, from the forceps to the stone. It's always breath that breaks the silence. Whenever you sing a song, the first note comes out of silence. And the last note, when you finish the song, 
falls back away down into silence again. And they say that no matter how many tunes you play, no matter how many songs you sing, there's no cure for silence. The soundtrack to the Pat Collins film, Silence. And that notion of the breath before a sound, the silence before noise, inhabits all singers. And breath, I think, is really interesting around the voice. You know, sometimes I would do things in Maya music and Genesis where you just breathe and let your, the sound of your breath touch people, because it does touch people, because, you know, you connect instinctively to it. And it's this sort of feathery muscle that actually instinctively grabs people. But also the, the physical act of singing and the breath control and the, the kind of tension and the release that invokes or provokes is, is something I find quite enthralling. There's a moment just before the singer sings the song. And it's in the realm of the underworld, actually. It's the tour they did on it. Because, I don't know about you, but twice it's happened to me that I've opened my mouth and I can't get the sound. Sound just doesn't come. Something is out of kilter, you know. So I think that is one of the very, very beautiful moments. Where does that sound come from? Singers Peter Gabriel, Steve Byrne and Nori Niri in there. And that is Meredith Monk singing. communication has always fascinated me. I think that originally people may not have distinguished between singing and talking or expressing themselves. I think it's been one thing and I think it's only been a couple of three, four, five centuries when we put music on stage and made it into something that is not part of our normal life. And I think that it's always been means of communication, different con communication to, to language, maybe deeper. I am Paulina Shepherd, a singer, musician, choir leader, performer. I was born in Siberia and uh, when I was three my parents moved to Kazan, which is the capital of Tatarstan. It's an Islamic Republic in Russia. And I grew up in a house where my parents, my grandparents all got together and sang at the family table. So that's how I learned my first songs. And of course I wanted to sing songs professionally since I was a child because it was so wonderful. So I went to a music school when I was seven and since then I've been 
singing, playing, composing, doing all sorts of things. I became a professional Jewish music performer when I was 16 years old. I think that the voice cuts through our mental blocks, our mind chatter. I think that the voice is so abstract and so profoundly deep. It's us, it's our body vibrating and making the sound. How much more intimate can you be? Sound comes from our body but through a tool. This is our voice, our body is the tool. And it's so profoundly about vibration, about these primary biological responses that we have in the body. I believe that there is something to do with that, with that biological response. And singing is abstract, singing is about vibration, feeling, emotion that goes beyond mental control. I really love these songs because they allow me to connect with certain roots that are so much further beyond myself, historically, energetically, in many ways, and I feel that connection. In Yiddish song, we have something that goes step by step with Yiddish music is um, Hasidic singing, which is mainly wordless. It's a way of the Hasidim, which is a strand in Jewish religion, to connect with God by singing and dancing, and usually without words because it needs to be abstract. So I don't know how much text and context of the song actually influences what I personally feel as a performer or as a teacher. I think that it's what I know about the song, what I feel about the song and how I express it into the world. Paulina Shepard on the wordless nigun singing of Jewish culture and that ululation she does, which is resonant of so many global vocal experiences. And our own Celtic tradition has one of the most beautiful forms of sound songs, mouth music, or part the bale. I think there's great solace in singing. I think people instinctively sing. They sing to connect with other people, to communicate, express sorrow and joy and despair. My name is Julie Fowlis. I'm a singer, originally from the Outer Hebrides, an island called North Uist, and living in the Highlands of Scotland now. And I sing predominantly in Scottish Gaelic. I guess North Uist is the island that sits right in the middle of the string of islands known as the Outer Hebrides, or the Western Isles, in Despite being very, very close, each island is very distinctive, but I guess the island to me represents a tradition and a culture that in many ways has survived and remained largely unchanged because of its geographical position. The types of songs within your tradition, I mean, mm -hmm. the, we know some of them, we're not as familiar at all as you are with this world. Like, there are love songs, presumably. Mm -hmm. There are lullabies. Yeah. And you have this Port de Bale yeah. phenomenon. Yeah. Well, Port de Bale, it's known in English as mouth music. And Porsche means literally tunes from the mouth. 
and I guess there are kind of two schools of thought about where this kind of music came from but I mean at its most basic people would sing the melodies that would be played on maybe the chanter or the fiddle or melodies that would be in existence through instrumental music and they would put words to them so at times maybe when there weren't instruments around for whatever reason they would sing these melodies so a bit like diddling but the words would be chosen very very carefully when you hear them, or certainly when you see some of the translations, you can kind of write these songs off as very simple little ditties that are kind of meaningless. But actually, they're very, very clever forms of composition. So there was that way where the tune would come first and then the words would be composed to it and then people would sing. Sometimes folk would dance to them. And then the other way around was, of course, that people would come up with these little songs and then people would play the tunes of those melodies. So I think there were two ways that they came into existence. But Portugal certainly thrived over the last couple of hundred years for different reasons. Look, many people had instruments, you know, and people really enjoy it. It can be a really fun thing to perform on stage. And it's full of life. And I guess we've got everything from like sort of spades and reels and jigs. I mean, I could I could sing you a little bit of one of it. Um, Haben dat de moor, haben dat tiram, haben dat de moor, gewoon ik het eerst. Haben dat de moor, haben dat tiram, haben dat de moor, gewoon ik het eerst. Gaat de weg en moor, gaat de weg en tiram, gaat de weg en moor. Gaan gewoon ik eerst. Haben dat de moor, haben dat de tiram, haben dat de moor, gewoon ik het eerst. Gorgeous. <laughs> we can't do that. I actually love discovering things that I can't do. <laughs> That's another one to add to the long list. <laughs> and you build a picture there of a place where land and language and music, they're kind of one system. Yeah. Do you recall what it was like growing up? I guess the important thing for me looking back was that Gaelic music and traditional music sat perfectly alongside everything else and it was as valid and as important to me as everything else that I was listening to. And probably looking back, perhaps much more so, but I didn't really realise it at the time. And I left the island when I was just at the beginning of my teenage years. And looking back, that's probably had quite a profound effect on what I do now. And perhaps engaging with the music and with the songs more keenly after I left was maybe my way of trying to retain that connection to a place that I call home. I have two children, they're aged five and almost three. Thinking back to when I was pregnant with my first child, I remember very clearly meeting this great singer from South Uist who told me, he said, the next time I see you, he said, you'll sing differently. He said, because you'll have had your baby. And I did remember that conversation and being quite surprised by it. And I had no expectation that my voice would change after having children. But I think it has. And it's hard to pinpoint exactly how it's changed, but I feel that there's a depth to it and a tonal change to my voice definitely since having children. <laughs> I suppose when I had the girls, it was a snap back to, actually, this is what the songs are for. 
and it makes you stop and think about the songs and it just makes you want to connect with them in a different way, maybe in a deeper way. <laughs> What is happening then, do you think? I mean, people have this great desire to sing. What do you think it is? I think it's so difficult to put into words sometimes, but I hear my children singing and they're not singing for anyone, only themselves. Nobody's asked them to sing. As parents, myself and Eamon, we don't ask them to sing. They'll be playing with their toys and they'll sing the story, maybe of what the toys are doing, what the little dolls are doing, what they're speaking, their little conversation, it'll turn into a song and then it'll go back to conversation. And I guess just like in the same way that maybe children will draw a picture and colour it in that might express something that's in their minds or happening in their lives. I see with my own kids that that can come out through song as well, just very naturally, they're not thinking about it. And before they're self-aware and nervous or don't want to be, you know, seen to be singing or anything before they become, have that kind of self-aware thing. It's beautiful to listen to and to see. It shows me that it's just within, that it comes from inside you. It's maybe even, in some cases, unstoppable. And I think at times of really heightened emotion, I think people do turn to song. It's why when you lose people that you love, beautiful words are written and then they're sung. And when you say goodbye to people, when they're leaving us for the final time, people always want music, they want song. and true and basic thing you can do as a human just to convey emotion in that heightened state is to sing. You could say the words and they could be very moving and have great impact, but by singing those words, it has a far greater impact on those who are listening. It can move them in ways that the spoken word can't. Throat singing is one of the most ancient forms of vocal sound. That's Hurhun Tu from Tuva, singing in the Oslo World Music Festival. In Tuvan tradition, only men were permitted to sing, while in the Inuit culture of Canada, it is the women who give voice to song. My name is Karen Kettler, and I'm an Inuit throat singer and drum dancer. My name is Kathy Kettler, and I'm an Inuit throat singer and drum dancer. The sounds that we're going to be making is... 
you have to make sure that you're breathing out as much as you're breathing in, or else you might get lightheaded. Inuit throat singing is a friendly competition between girls. It was something that they would do while the men were out hunting. We do imitations of the sounds that we hear around us, like animals and tools in nature. It's the same sound, but only a half second off from each other, and that's how we can blend our voices. Throat singing comes from our voice, our throat, and our breathing. Breathe. Okay. <clears throat> I really enjoy throat singing. It is part of the culture that we're from, Inuit culture. It is very unique in the sense that there are no other cultures in Canada that do this sort of singing. It's very important to pass along throat singing. It is a very oral tradition. It can't be written down. It has to be learned from someone else. Throat singing is a strength for our people, for the Inuit people and being able to learn it and be proficient at it and pass it on to others is a really great gift to have and give. What is really quite extraordinary about throat singing across the world is that the sounds come from humans imitating the natural world around them, the acoustomology of the living planet. We listen before we sing. Yoiking is the only traditional way of music that the Sami people have. And it was not to perform, it was to remember people, because we yoik of people, we yoik uh, places. And it's a lot about remembering different people and places. My name is uh, Niljas Holmberg. I'm a vocalist in Nordic Namgar band. I come from northern Finland in a small village called Otsajoka, a Sami village, and I'm a Sami person myself. The Sami people usually from those areas, they are sort of grown into this traditional way of singing that's called yoiking from the very childhood. You can he hear from a person when he's yoiking if he has yoiked since his childhood or her childhood. And you can hear if it's been learned afterwards. And it is said that it's pretty impossible to get it perfectly if you haven't done it since you were a kid. The shamans uh, used yoiking as one of their methods to get into trance while maybe drumming their drum. So that's one example of the spiritual part. And also Sami people consider nature very spiritual. It's everything for them and uh, it has a lot of spirit. It's not only trees and tundra, it's a, a connection, sort of. It's hard to explain it. But also about yoiking, it is said that one doesn't create a yoik. It is merely channelized through oneself from the nature. It's like an ID. You, you communicate, uh, you, you meet people through yoiking. I also think that different kind of traditional ways of singing from across the world, different 
parts from the world. What makes them similar to each other is that they are closer to the nature, they're closer to the sounds of nature, birds, animals, water, thunder, whatever. I think it's very encouraging to see that something similar is being done across the world. For example, Sami people, we feel a family with the Native Americans. And very often their way of singing sounds like yoiking. There's not a big difference, actually. I'll give you a little improvisation. It is very freeing. After a while, while doing that, you, you feel emptied. Sometimes you feel that you're visited some place, some, some other place. The peoples of the Arctic Circle looking skyward sometimes refer to the beautiful aurora borealis as fox's fire. And even their myth stories talk about being able to hear it as a whistle in the sky. Growing up as I did in a Shano singing culture in Coulee, I didn't hear myself in a global soundscape. Didn't realise, perhaps, that common river we all swim within. What Niels Holmberg talks about as a global vocal experience, drawing from nature. But many years later, my journey crossed with Yoiking on an album I made, which I called Foxlight. Fever to rink a temple. 
Mariella Gaup, whose voice has such an ethereal quality, singing Bracca and Lay with me. It wasn't until I began exploring those world sounds and hearing voices like the Pakistani Kuali singer Nusrat Fatali Ali Khan, released on Peter Gabriel's Real World Records label, that I began to hear myself in a universal vocal story. Really, one man and real world all began out of that because we were just sitting around saying, "This is fantastic," but not many people. You can't find the records. It's hard to see them live. Nusrat. Yeah, Nusrat. That is just you know, Pakistani Pavarotti. Just an extraordinary voice, and you know, I saw him at a Womad in Essex for the very first time, and it just. Um, blew me away, you know, because in a sense it was compositional. He was improvising all the time and the fluency of what he was generating and writing, as well as integrating with this sort of very focused acoustic sort of powerhouse thing from the musicians with him and, and the chant and refrain thing that, that was going on. It was just very powerful. I think it's interesting the whole history of music and relationship to spiritual stuff, you know, and even I think as I get older I'm more atheist, but the power of the spiritual content of music increases for me in some ways, because that seems to so often give people the means to get in touch with something else, either in them or out there. Was hearing somebody like Nusrat did that change you, how you hear music? I mean, it seems to me from what you're saying that it certainly had an influence. Yeah, no, I think all of my encounters with these remarkable singers and musicians from other cultures, I think opened me up and allowed me to see my own work from a different perspective. Peter Gabriel on the extraordinary Sufi devotional singer Nusrat Fatah Ali Khan, who died tragically young, just 49. But that chiming between that sense of the human spirit 
and song seems to be at the heart of things. There is no holy one like you. You install kings and take them down. Music came to me very early, really around four. I was walking along one day and I began to hear music with the rhythm of my feet. And from then on, I always heard music every time I heard any rhythm, if it was the women's tights rubbing together when they walked, or trains, or clocks, or whatever. But as that first happened to me when I was walking in the road, I remember looking at the sky and going, wow, thanks. And I saw it as my life, my rope, if you like. So that's what singing is to me. It's the thing that keeps you hanging on. You could compare it with an umbilical cord, but I, a rope is what I always think songs are, and therefore singing is the same, you know, ropes that you can hang on to if you like and then also for me um, and I think probably for a lot of people singing was very healing that there were things people went through perhaps before they could even speak that you couldn't recover from because there weren't words for nor was there therapy or whatever and all you could do is make sounds that the sounds themselves were healing to just be able to vocalise this thing you know There go the ships they all look to you and if you think of it, the first thing a human being does is use their voice. First thing a baby does when it comes out is cry. You're waiting for that sound. If it doesn't come, you're worried. So like, what fascinates me is the voice is in the womb, ready to come out, and it's the very first thing. And all the theologies of the world start with the idea that somehow the voice, whether it was sung or spoken, is what brought the universe into existence. Sinead O'Connor on the spiritual essence of music, a theme echoed by a young South African musician I met who crosses traditional singing with world influences. Yes, I think it is a spiritual thing and it can help you to connect between the present and the future and the past, you know. So I think that's what is happening maybe to some of my music, that some of it you feel it like, Hey, it's so spiritual, why is like that? And you know, it's because of how I grew up and what I was being exposed to as a South African musician in Soweto. You know, happy times, bad times, all of those things, they come out through your music. I feel that as a musician, you always have to check music and be connected, especially to the universe itself, you know. Don't be an ignorant person. So for me, how I, I love sound, natural sound, I don't use earphones when I go to the street because I think that sometimes I'll lose what is happening from the nature, you know. <laughs> 
My name is Bafana Ntlapo. I grew up in Chablani in Soweto. My father was a leader of Kingstar Brothers, which is a traditional male voices only. So they used to rear in our place in a garage. So I used to sneak in and hide myself under the bed just to listen from them while they were raising and try to grab some of the vocals and how to express yourself. And then one day I end up forgetting myself. I started to sing with them. That's how they found me that I was hiding under the bed and then they had to take me out because I was not allowed to <laughs> come and join them at that time. I was too young, but he, that's how I started singing. <laughs> is someone who, uh, because in the oldest days they used to have someone to go maybe on top of the mountain to send a message through a certain sound, you know. That sound to, to send it, the only way was to wail it. And then when they wail that sound, it's gonna go with waves of wind and the, the mountains until it reach that certain person who is in a certain distance. That's how wailing like, was used as a communication in the oldest days. Even me, I inherited that, you know from just going to countryside and we used to grow up like he's maybe sitting on a mountain and then he, you make a certain sound and then someone else from the other hill make a certain sound. So I think that's how I discover the wailing, what is the meaning of it and the, how to do it. Yeah. Ah. Being a South African and having this idea of learning from other cultures how they sing you know how they express themselves and taking that and bring it to your people and said look how beautiful is this sounds what if we combine them and we make something again unique you know I'm just learning and I'm willing to learn almost every day and I'm so happy to express my voice as long as I'm still alive but you will see the it's so interesting the way Bafana sees his voice as a tool to access the past, the present, the future, as a pinhole on his culture, and how these traditional sounds root us, but also connect us to our place in the universe. Sami singer Nilis Homburg talks of channeling nature, the sounds around us, into music, into song. I recognize that as part of my own journey. I remember when I started making records on the album The Seven Steps to Mercy, wanting very much to bring the natural sounds of the river into the song Awa. And there I was on my knees by the little river Douglish, recording that very sound. Yeah. Uh -huh. 
But a river can be a recorder too. I'm Nadi Simpson. I'm a Uluroi woman that's northwest New South Wales. It's about 10 hours from Sydney. And we're flat plains people, we're river people, we're freshwater people. I'm a musician and a storyteller. When I think about singing in language, the first kind of story that I have a connection to is in my family's living memory. So Aboriginal people were taken from their country, their place where they lived, and moved into a sort of generalised place, usually a mission station. And the story that is in our family is that when people were being taken, the old people refused to go. The old people decided to stay and live that traditional way. And because we've got a lot of rivers, beautiful rivers, and the rivers amplify, they're like a natural microphone. The old people would purposely sit on the other side of the river from the mission, looking at their family and their young ones living over there, and they would sing our songs, the old stories, and the old language to them, using that river as a microphone. And when I think about that, I think those old people, they're smart because not only were they singing of their loss, really, but the story goes that they were singing those songs so that those people, if they were separated from language, knew that the words always belonged to them. So however far their journey went from language, words that we use, they would know that if they exist, they are meant to be together. When I think about traditional music in my country or my nation, there's a very strong tie to that otherworldly, ethereal thing. And song men and song women were given songs in dreams and things like that. And quite often those dreams were from a person who spoke and gave the song in a completely different 
song language, a dream language, and then had to be translated by the song man or the song woman to the people around. So all this kind of mixing of language and time and grounding and things in the sky is really interesting to me. If I wasn't singing myself, I don't think it'd be too bad, but I always seem to find people who are in and around music. If I didn't have that sound in my life, I really think it'd be like a, a grey. Life would be grey. I think music and actually people's stories that they inject into that sound is the reason why we see colour in our lives. Life would be grey. Nardi Simpson in Sydney there, closing this first episode of Vocal Chords, a journey into the noises before meaning, the sounds before singing. Next time, I'm exploring the potent mix of language, song and belonging. How song profoundly connects us to home and becomes a vocal map to ourselves. Mm -hmm.